0: Okay, let's begin with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for the fact that we are free to come and gather together in your name and proclaim the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, for giving us a desire to learn and a hunger for the truth. And Lord, may we learn how to read what you have said through your apostles, this binding upon us help us lord in jesus name amen. amen amen okay now you have if you picked it up print out of john chapter 9 it's a fairly long chapter 41 verses i've been working on this for for some time and Let's just read the first five verses to start with. Then I have some things to say about who determines the meaning of the Bible. Who determines the meaning? John 9 and verse 1. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, I know we're all working on a project to find out what the main point is. And one of the things I said last week is pay attention to details that may be repeated later or may be significant in the narrative. Now, it's not the first time anybody blind was healed in the Gospels, and it is in John. But he said that blind from birth, right, blind from birth. So... From birth may be important. I'll let you decide that. I'm thinking maybe it is. <laughs> but I don't want to unduly influence everybody. Uh, verse 2. His disciples questioned him. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Have you ever heard, in the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, people wanting to know who sinned that caused some sort of problems? Is that that's not new, is it? Is it common? Remember, I was preaching on this a couple of weeks ago. Job's comforters, and it was pretty common to believe somebody must have sinned. But this one seems to me maybe there's a dilemma here because it's hard to say the guy sinned if he was that way when he was born so there's a little tension remember I mentioned tension blind from birth who sinned now we got some tension we got a problem here verse 3 neither this man nor his parents sinned Jesus answered this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him Now, I did some research on that just yesterday. Very interesting. It's not necessary, but very helpful if you have a computer uh, that can search these things. The works of God, it says in Greek. I've got some stuff I printed out here, and we'll talk about what, what, what are the works of God and why are they important? Or maybe they're not important, but something tells me maybe they are here's why look at verse 4 we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day night is coming when no one can work as long as I'm in the world I'm the light of the world and then the healing proceeds and there's some issues that will come up now I think Light of the World is certainly a review and a preview, but it's not necessarily the key to this chapter. But this has something to do with Jesus being on the scene of history. I would say that. Now, I've got some slides, and I want you to think about something for a while. In a bit, I brought along my book here called Anointed to Serve the History of the Assemblies of God. That was one of the first books I had to read as a new Christian when I went to Bible college. And there's a story in there that might help us. But let me let me have you entertain a question. Who determines the meaning of the Bible? Now, when I took uh, Dr. Stein's class, late, 20 years later, I went back. 1972, I was in Bible college. 1992, I was in seminary. Turns out the timing was perfect because I got the best teachers I could ever have asked for in both cases. I had Reverend Smith, who was an expert on intertestamental Judaism and how it influences the New Testament. This was in the early 70s. In the in a Pentecostal denomination, this is unheard of. Somebody that scholarly, teaching stuff that seems odd for pentecostals that seem to be always driven by emotions well then i get to baptist general council or general baptist i don't know how it works but their seminary here's bob stein whose book on hermeneutics now is one of the best out there we didn't even get that wasn't written yet we had to read a book by ed hirsch called validity and interpretation it was one of the most painful books because it was so scholarly it's so full of footnotes, my, my head was going to explode. It was so hard. Eventually, he wrote his own book, and it became very, very well respected. But here's the question Dr. Stein asked us at the very beginning, very first class I had. Who determines the meaning of the Bible? And he put up some on overhead some options. Is it the author? So he had these three things up there. Is it the text? Or is it the reader? Those are the three options. Well, hold on a second. Well, any author. If you write a letter to somebody, do you expect them to know what you mean or not? If you wrote... Well, in the postmodern era, a lot of times they don't. So let's say you wrote a letter to your son, and you said, Dear son, I love you, I respect you, I'm honored to be able to help you when I can. I thank God that you're my son. Okay? So he gets the letter, and he's postmodern, and he reads it. And he says... This means to me that you're an overbearing Trump supporter <laughs> who hates everybody. Not that I might someone do that, but uh, you know, you have hidden motives and I know what they are, but so that's the problem with the reader. Now Dr. Stein started every new semester, and I was a brand new student, nineteen ninety two having already been in the ministry for almost 20 years. He started with a story. And I was a little bit too zealous, and I think I, I created a problem for his class because I was so excited to learn scholarship, being a recovered pietist. So he said, let's say there's a difficult passage in the Greek Bible, and we have two groups that are going to de- try to determine the meaning. One group is language experts over at the U who make no particular religious claims, but they understand and they're experts at the Greek language, ancient Greek, Hellenistic Greek, Judaism, Biblical Greek, and they're going to see if they can determine the meaning. And then he says the other group is going to be People that don't know much about this, but they're they're Christians. They're born again. They're going to go sit on a grassy knoll, on a sunny day, and pray, and ask God to tell them the meaning. Who do you think would most likely to come up with the correct meaning? Well, he starts every class with that because he knows that most people say, "Well, they're Christians," but having been delivered from that sort of thinking, my hand was up again. I I was too zealous. I was. I'm embarrassed the way I was. Oh, Dr. Stein, Dr. Stein. Okay, what do you think? I'll go with the Greek experts every time. Don't trust those Christians praying they'll get it wrong. Well, that was the right answer from his perspective. Now, let me explain those categories. The author, the text, and the reader now in linguistics and language studies not every author is inspired by the holy spirit and inerrant, but we believe that biblical authors are right do you believe that paul spoke for god did he speak inerrantly? did he write using common languages not some cryptic language that's only known on mars he wrote using common languages. The readers read the Bible. Now, if the reader determines the meaning, then we're saying what? If you're a born again Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, then you know what Paul means. But if you're just somebody who really knows languages, you have no clue what he means. So that would mean that we have like an encoded cryptograph going on. And by the way, some Christians believe this. I think it's insane, which, in fact, it will lead you to that. But it's encoded. So whatever the text actually says may not mean anything, have anything to do with what it actually means. But the enlightened one, Luther called them the enthusiasts, they read it, they go, Ooh, God told me it means this. Then that's the meaning. But there's no real code book. It's all mentally constructed. Okay, nobody has a code book. And the person saying it means that, that code book's in his own head. Now, there was a time when someone started a whole denomination doing that. So I brought along today... I told you the story of Doctor Stein, how he started his class. Here's a book called "Anointed to Serve: The History." This is the history, the story of the assemblies of God. Story of the assemblies of God. One of the first classes I ever had, they read this story to me. Let me tell you what it looks like when the reader determines the meaning. They don't actually say that. They say the Holy Spirit tells the reader what the meaning is but the holy spirit is god and god cannot lie and you got 10 different meanings depending on 10 different readers so then you got to confuse god let me read for this is from 1913 i wasn't alive then no no don't laugh It's it's all it's totally true but the some of my teachers in bible college were in 1970 when i took the class 72 listen carefully in april 1913 at a worldwide pentecostal camp meeting being conducted at arroyo secco near los angeles a new revelation parenthetically not un- an uncommon thing in those days received considerable emphasis the main speaker at the camp meeting was mrs mary woodworth edder but the speaker who unwittingly triggered the eruption was r.e mcallister at a baptismal service held near the main camp meeting tent brother mcallister casually observed that the apostles invariably baptized their converts once in the name of jesus christ and that the words father son and holy ghost were never used in christian baptism. When they heard this, a shudder, says this writer, the historian, swept through the preachers on the platform. One preacher even stepped over to whisper to Brother McAllister to refrain from emphasizing that doctrine, or it would associate the camp with a Mr. Sykes who was so baptized. Reaction to this announcement was varied. One earnest preacher particular though particular though was deeply moved by the significance of the name of Jesus. John G. Sheppey went much of the night in prayer. Now this is an illustration of the reader determining the meeting. He spent much of the night in prayer. Early in the light of morning he was giving given quote this is a quote within the text here, a glimpse of the power of the name of Jesus, unquote. He jumped to his feet, ran through the campgrounds, startling early risers and awakening those still asleep. Shep shouted his new revelation of the power in the name of Jesus. His enthusiasm caused many to de- spend the day searching the Bibles regarding the name of Jesus. The enthusiasm created a royal se- that created a royal secco. Gained such momentum that soon afterwards, many Pentecostal churches up and down the West Coast were affected. At Long Beach, a large company of people were rebaptized in the new formula, name of Jesus only. This rebaptism with the new formula was felt to be the gateway to the new blessing. Attention was focused on the name invoked by the apostles in the book of Acts connection with the performance of miracles, exorcism of evil spirits, and water baptism. This emphasis led rapidly to the virtual denial of the Trinity, a type of modal monarchialism being espoused. Following the identification of the Holy Spirit with Jesus, the next step was declaration of something. Unless one had received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, Accompanied by speaking with tongues, he was not saved. I'll stop my quote. So I started Bible college being warned about this, and I started seminary being warned about this. So this is not only one kind of group. Christians have always been drawn to being enthusiasts. Now, there's still a whole movement that denies the Trinity, and believes in modal monarchialism, go out 94, and where do you see them? The apostolic, whatever it is out there. They're still around. They deny the Trinity. When a voice from heaven said, this is my son, listen to him, it was God talking to himself. In a weird way, there's no persons to the Trinity. Now, what they had to do to deal with that was to go to doctrine derived from Scripture and not somebody that prayed all night, got a revelation and went running through the campground and got everybody excited. So there's various versions of that. Rome is full of it. Okay, you got these people sitting in monasteries depriving themselves of everything under the sun, and they get their revelation. Where do you think this all comes from? Well, no longer does the author, God who inspired the apostles, determine the meaning. The text doesn't create meaning, it, it transmits it. The reader either understands it, believes it, and implies it or not. Now, when it says the letter kills and the Spirit gives life, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit tells the reader what the Bible means it means if we refuse to believe what god said we will die when moses went up on sinai and met god in a most powerful theophany moses received the ten words that's what they're called those words included thou shall not steal do you think that we could have western civilization if thou shalt not, thou shalt not steal means what the reader wants it to mean. Well, of course not, but that's what's going on now. Thou shalt not steal unless a rich guy has more than you do, then steal. Then, then it's okay. The Bible means what it says, but if there's an issue, we need to learn to read. The meaning isn't morphing and changing and evolving and expanding and determined by who's most enthusiastic who's most pious who prayed the longest is determined by God who inspired the biblical writers and that meaning is not going to go against the text that transmits it to us so what I'm going to teach you for a while is to read after that little story about the guys praying on the hill dr. Stein said you're gonna learn how to read Dr. Versiput said, you're going to learn how to read. He's the one who I learned in his classroom. So now the good news is we've got tools that are unbelievable now. I'm going to show you some of my tools of study. In case I got excited when I was a young man and I saw people that knew these things like Reverend Smith. and But I wanted to do that. I wanted to learn. I wanted to know what God said. I didn't want to be dependent on church history, the traditions of man, something that somebody did who was an apostle. I want to know what God said. What are the best way to do that? And Dr. Stein convinced me to study and learn how to read because God has spoken. Listen, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. I hope you listen to our radio series on Hebrews. It's starting to come up. If the reader determines the meaning if and only if the reader is a special enlightened one like the pope or the college of cardinals or whoever well then what's the point of saying god has spoken he has spoken in full and final revelation it's not going to change but whether we believe it and obey it is up for grabs but not what god said god has spoken do you want to know what god said yes yes Do you think you'd better learn it if you're using some Bible translation? Nobody could understand. Of course not. So we're going to use whatever tools we can get our hands on to know what God said. Let me show you now. I'm going to be a little transparent because I'm hoping to inspire some people that are going to live a lot longer than I probably am. Now, you won't be able to read this one. I have one in a moment that you will be able to read it. All right, you can't read that, but let me. Here's how I, I learn these things. This is what I wanted to know. Just reading John 9 in an English translation, did you notice the term blind happened a lot? Anybody else notice that? Blind, 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 it comes up constantly. So I want to know, how many times is that, what's the Greek word? And it's, uh, it's uh, two that's plural, and here it's in Matthew. And so the heading. When I do this, I pull up the Greek. I right-click, I left-click, I right-click again, and I get this. Holman Christian Standard, Nestle Aland 27. Okay, so there's all the usages, and it says here, 50 results in 46 verses. So the term blind is found 50 times in the entire Greek New Testament. Then what I did was I went on down here to John. There's Luke. There's John. John 5.3 is the first one. John 5.3 is the first one time John used it. And I did a study to find out how often John used it. And it turns out, you can't see that, so I'll just nix it. Uh, It turns out that John used the term... Something like 17 times. I just hand counted them. 17 uses in John's writings out of 50 in the New Testament. That's very. That's a lot. One of them is in Revelation. Somebody, Levon, could you read? Oh no. I got a new phone. I have no idea even how to turn it off. That's bad. Okay. Revelation 3.17, it's the last use of blind by John. Most of them are in John 9. Because you say, I am rich,
1: have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked.
0: Yeah, they're rebuked, the Laodicean church, for not even knowing they're blind. Last time John used it. I hope the wheels are turning. Oh, what's this all about? John uses it a lot, mostly in John nine, and in in, in his writings. People that don't know they're blind. Now, in the objective world or the phenomenal world, everybody blind, is blind. Knows it, right? Is it possible to be blind not know it? Not after you reach a certain age. Yes.
2: I I think also that Laodicea. I think one of the things that that city was known for is I think that they had a balm or something that was used to heal blind or you know it was it was visual vision, and so this is really he's he's really saying you think that you. Have this healthy vision, but yet you're blind. So yeah. that kind of answers your question, too, I think, or your question. Well, they're blind question. and they don't
0: know it, so it's spiritual, not actual physical. All right. Now, so we're looking at what Jesus said in verse 9 3. This man, neither this man nor his parents sin. Now, is Jesus denying his sin nature? No. All of sin. But remember, now this, this isn't exactly the first place you look because we want to stay in John as much as possible. John will help us know what John means because he's the Holy Spirit inspired author. But elsewhere, Jesus said, Remember the, the tower fell on some, were they worse sinners? So it's possible to get it wrong and think, well, bad things happen to the worst sinners. Now, Laodicea would be evidence against that. Okay, they think that they're great, but they're not. Verse 4, we, now there's an interesting plural. It is in the Greek. Also, we must do the works of him who sent me. Well, it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. And in verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, We is a more difficult reading, but it's, I think, the correct one. It's probably a royal or epistolatory we, because there's something that Jesus is going to do that only God can do. And I'm hoping that we'll explore this and see that this is a miracle that actually shows that Jesus is the creator, which is a theme in John. So before you get to John 9 really good to read John 1 through 8 particularly John 1 okay now I did get one slide that actually works by the way I had surgery on Wednesday and with this eye I can see the time up there I couldn't before so that was cataract surgery I'm no longer blind. I see. I see. Take up an offering. <laughs> yeah, feed the fatted calf. Now this one, I think you maybe can see. I can't get this to go any bigger with the tools I have. If one of you computer experts know how to get my computer to show on the whole screen, it'd be great. But here's a word. So this is in Greek, which you likely don't know. But I'm looking at this word, must, because it's in our verse here. D-E, or delta, epsilon, iota, must. Eric and I have talked about it. it means, generally, divine necessity. But we're going to find out if that's correct. John 3, 7. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. Would that suggest it's an option? No. Who created it non-optional? Yeah, Christ or God, God. Who's God? Next one. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Where? What does day mean there? The, what would the context indicate? By divine necessity, Jesus must go to the cross. Right because God's purpose is that Jesus will go to the cross. Any comment on that? next one we got two and one it's a miracle John three thirty he must increase, but I must decrease that's who John the Baptist John four four he had to travel through Samaria There are the Holman Christian Standard Bible doesn't take must as strongly. I think they probably should have. Yes.
2: You mentioned, you know, divine necessity, and I was going to say a little earlier, you know, we may not understand. We we've talked to unbelievers all the time, of course, and most people, if they don't understand it, they just can't believe that it was a divine necessity of God. But it is God that decides what is the divine necessity? We, we, because we have a sin nature, we kind of oftentimes, we're the ones that want to decide what is the divine yeah. necessity. The
0: whole seeker movement wants man to decide. What do you want to have if you go to church? They don't care what God said. They want to know what they want for church. Now, why did Paul say that God has chosen to use the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe because God has chosen the cross and nobody is wanting a crucified Jewish Messiah. Now look at this one. He had to travel through Samaria. Why? Because it's God's purpose. But what are we going to find out? God's purpose actually eventually involves saving Samaritans. Right? So there's a God is in charge. John 4.20 our fa- now, this one wasn't even translated, which I think is a weakness in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. This is the woman who Jesus was engaged in theological discussion with. Okay, Our fathers, the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain. Was that Gerizim? Is that right? Where did Samaritans worship? Gerizim yeah you Jews say the place to worship is in Jerusalem she actually said it's stronger she said you must worship in Jerusalem so to her it was even more stark you can't please God unless you worship in Jerusalem so that's that's what she actually said in degree. The Greek but there is day here's one in John four twenty-four. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus said it's, it's not just whether it's Gerizim or the traditions of the Jews. You must be born again, he said earlier here. He says, you must worship in spirit and in truth. Dear Flock, do you think what's true is important? I've been preaching that for all the way through 1 John, 2nd John, 3 John. I haven't preached through gospel of john since the 80s so i kind of like doing this john 9 4 now we're into our chapter we must do the works of him who sent me while his day and the night is coming when no one is work can work so jesus somehow ties all of this to god's purpose in christ Does that do do you agree or somebody have a better reading I'm just looking at what I see in John 9 by looking at what came before it. So there's something going on about what's necessary so that the works of God will be displayed. Put that in your back shelf or on your notes or whatever. Yes, Levon. Hold on. The sky moves pretty fast, but you still got to wait a little bit. I... <laughs> In, when I was studying this, I wrote, God is sovereign and fulfills his purposes for his glory and honor. That's true. Absolutely. It's a good interpretation. Verse 4. Now, here's some more. John 10, 16. I must bring them in what other sheep that are not of this fold. They will listen to my voice. Remember, you're supposed to listen to God. The other sheep, by the way, are not Martians. They're actually from all nations. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Here's their dilemma. The crowd replied to him We have heard from the scripture that Messiah will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? What's the answer? Jesus. How do you resolve this dilemma? How Lifted up meant to be crucified. Remember as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. How do you solve the dilemma that Messiah has to be crucified and Messiah will remain forever? His resurrection, ascension, and exaltation, and ascension at the right hand of God and promise to come again and promise to establish his future kingdom he will abide forever but there's a process good answer last one for they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead now remember this was people that were still confused but the confusion went away when the truth became more clear and fully known now let me clear up a confusion that might come up right from this verse here when I was a new christian i read you from there that was a dilemma to me i gotta admit my own the reality of my own learning and not listening i walked right straight into a dilemma in 19 this was written in 70 i got there in 72 there were two obvious wings of the assemblies of god as a denomination They were the enthusiasts, but nobody called them that. They were the ones who emphasized the power of the Holy Ghost. That's what they said back then. It's all about the power of the Holy Ghost. And that wing would always gravitate to the best orator who could persuade people. So this was the 70s. So, So literally this happened. A guy comes in who had a big church in Des Moines, Iowa. He's got a purple suit, giant collar, white shoes, and he pranced all up and down the stage, yelling and shouting. You've probably seen that. And he went on and on and on and on. See, that was, in one sense, their hero. But because of what had happened not too long before I got there, and I was just a converted pagan who had left the church altogether, before I became a Christian and was converted because of seeing evidence through science and then hearing the testimony of Christians but when when I got there there was that wing and then there was a reaction against that going on and it was all right there my teachers mostly had gone the other way because they had just gone through the new apostolic reformation William Branham Latter-day apostles, non-Trinitarianism. They went through all of these, and Branham made shipwreck of many people's faith. And so some of them in the assemblies where I was converted said, we need scholarship. That was Reverend Smith, Reverend Phillips, and so on. My teachers, they were great teachers. I took two whole years of Greek, three quarters each, because they believed in that. But there was the other wing that believed the Holy Ghost moves people. And the scholarship was a side street. And my best role model was Reverend Smith. He was so good. He's the one that questioned me. And I told you the story. He said, go, go study Colossians 2 and 3, or Colossians 2 from the Greek. And I couldn't even do it. He's the one who was an expert in the languages. And he's the one that told me something I'm going to show you here, I hope. But then there were the people that were really enthusiastic in the charismatic movement, which was in assemblies. I went and joined the charismatic. Diane and I joined the charismatic. And we went all the way. We joined a community where you gave up everything you owned. You gave everything to the leaders. And you just went there and served. You escaped the world by just leaving it or so we thought. Now, it was when I left in 1980 when I realized I should have listened to the people tell me to follow the scripture. It started a 30, 40 year learning. And I actually contacted my former teachers and said, "I thank you for teaching me River Snow, Reverend Phillips, so on. You were right, and I was wrong. Because... Once the leadership speaks for God, they will abuse their power. That's the Pope. Yes.
3: If I may ask you a personal question, what was it
0: in 1980 that made you realize that you were going to leave? I began questioning the guy who was in charge of the whole group who could not be questioned. He spoke for God. And he started teaching things that I knew were not right. And there was a lot of problem. And his wife started promoting Christian feminism. And then he started teaching this father's love, which was total uh, psychological gospel. And and when I questioned it, they sent me to another city. Here we were going to have a baby. We got sent to another city For the sin of questioning the guy who was in charge. It's like being Catholic and saying the Pope doesn't speak for God. You decide what you want. But if you end up in a group where whoever claims that they hear from God makes all the decisions, you will be abused every single time. Luther said the lowliest anybody here, any one of you, who knows the truth of the Bible for what it really means and say to the Pope, you speak falsely, be silent in the church. Yes.
1: I just want to share this. I'm so grateful you bring this topic up, but on just a general in the family how this looks, because this is in my family, what you're talking about. I'm very familiar with it. But when I was in Florida, my uh, niece's children were going to a church, and they go to the children's Bible studies, you know, the Sunday school, and the children came home, and they would spend like a month learning a Bible verse, and unfortunately, I don't remember the verse, but it's out of Exodus, but what the girls came home memorizing was, I am the Lord your God, and I will not bring any of these diseases upon you, and... Um, so, all the parents, the adults, were just aesthetic, thinking these girls, oh look at they 're memorizing Bible verses, how great they 're tucking the word of the Lord in their heart. But the problem is is under this ideology, what these girls are learning is that they won 't get sick they won 't have problems because the Lord their God will be with them, and so the whole time I was anguishing in my heart, how can i you know what how can I confront this and these girls are reading age, none of them, you know, they didn't know how to look up anything in the Bible to read for themselves. So I took that, you know, just a few minutes that I had their attention and we went to the Bible verse and we looked at in context how this was, you know, comparing the Egyptians who don't follow the word of God to people, to the Israelites who do and God's purpose of bringing them out of Egypt. And I told them, you know, have your parents read you the whole story. I said, this is an incredible story. But that's not the message that gets away. And we as parents are doing the hoorah-rah. They've learned some Bible verses, but they don't get.
0: And so what false doctrine does, that one you're talking about, is as soon as anybody has a problem, now Job's comforters come from everywhere. And they tell you it's your own fault. You deserve everything to happen to you. You're a defeated Christian. Because there's something you did wrong. That's what's going on with this here. Did you see it? So don't get that far out of your mind. Who sinned? Who sinned is always what they want to know. Now, let me give you a little clue. We're trying to find out what John means in this pericope. Somehow or another, we've got to get this tension resolved. And John has just told us that he did come so that the purposes of God can be revealed. And we saw that the term blind is used more in John 9 than any other of John's writings by a great degree so let's just start putting together let's not prejudge the first time I took the a class where I had to do this I got it wrong because I was overzealous but that's okay getting it wrong is what helped me learn how to do this remind me sometime I'll tell you how I got it wrong Go ahead. But it wasn't on John, it was in Luke. Go ahead. Well,
2: I was just going to back up and say, I think you're talking about Joyce Meyer's theology.
0: It goes way, way back. Joyce Myers teaches it, but she didn't create it. It came from the mind over matter cults of the early 20th century. Okay? If you go to cicministry.org and look for some of the doctrines that I've critiqued about that, you'll see that I researched this all the way back to its roots. Okay? I have to go look at my footnotes. But this existed. The first Christian teacher, quote, Christian teacher, to popularize it was Kenneth Hagin. Okay? I had believed it at one time. But then I found out, I told you my story the other day in a sermon visiting people in their 80s dying in fear who are faithful Christians because they assume they must have sinned. And one of the things that happened when I got out of all of that, seeing the abuses of it and realizing that's not how we learn from God and going back to the authority of Scripture and a priesthood of every believer, that, listen, it's not true that you can determine moral character by based on how much somebody does or doesn't suffer. Kenneth Hagin created that doctrine. I used to have his booklets, okay? I had a booklet in my heresy library that I read at one time, shamefully, before I knew it was wrong, that said how to write your own ticket with God. You write the ticket, God does your bidding, you get it. How do you do that? He he used the King James. Whoever believes whatsoever he saith. So your faith is in your own words. And I've written about this. I've done seminars about it. Faith is not in our own words. Our faith is in Christ. And what we're learning from John nine is that Christ. Look at this. Don't give up on this. We're going to get through it. Before maybe before the rapture, but. Uh, listen the, this issue is there because Jesus has already given us a partial answer what did he say we must do the works of him who sent me while his day and in verse 9 neither this man or his parents but the works of God might display in him do you think that uh, satisfies liberals no because they don't believe the problem isn't You don't have the mystical meaning. The problem is always unbelief. And I've actually debated people who said this. What kind of God who had the power to do it would let a man go through that many years blind and suffering when he could have prevented it all along? The open theists, great boys of the world, the open theists They can't accept what God said. Now, sometimes they understand it well enough. They just don't like it. All right? Is it reasonable? Now, you've read the whole story. Does this guy end up becoming a believer? Yes. Let me ask you. If what Jesus says is true, and there is an eternity, and there is a new heavens and a new earth and a paradise... And if Eric's right about how he preached on it last week, there's more to it than strumming a harp in a cloud somewhere. Right? Not that that would, I don't know if that's good or bad. I haven't tried it. I'm kind of stuck here on planet Earth. But here's the deal. Is it worth going through all of this time and then being in heaven for all eternity and if your blindness is part of how you came to Christ, would you think it was worth it? Praise God. Amen, LaVon. Yes. Praise God. But if you don't think biblically, you'll mock this. Don't listen to the world, listen to God. Yes. God created all things with his words, and when we
2: if if man tries to create their own reality with their words, that's witchcraft.
0: Yes. That's true. It is, it's divination.
3: Oh, I don't know if he has a good time to talk, but I was I was going to say I, I was kind of, I just was exploring that Word of Faith movement myself, and I would say this. I was looking at, you know, like, uh, for instance, one guy that I met, he said, you watch John MacArthur, he says, everything has ceased, all the gifts have ceased. Well, he goes over to the other side, and they got wacky doctrines, but they're believing in the gifts, and stuff is happening sometimes. <clears throat> And it's like, okay, so everybody could be, you know, both sides have right things, but both sides have, you know, I think charismatic has a lot of really screwing. Well,
0: I don't care about John MacArthur versus Jimmy Swaggart, okay? Yeah. I'm concerned about what God said. Now, my claim is there are no new revelations beyond Scripture, Scripture alone. My claim is the Bible means what it says, And I believe in the priesthood of every believer and a perspicuity of Scripture, meaning that we can understand it. I have never claimed that the gifts ceased. Hmm. Neither did Luther. When Eric and I, you can ask him, when we went to Canada, I took a stand on that. And I've written about it. And I don't think that helps any. Now, the teachers I had at North Central Bible College were Pentecostals who believed in gifts, And they were the ones that told me there are no new revelations. Okay? The word of faith has a false deity. Their Jesus lost his divinity on the cross and went to hell as an ordinary man. Okay? Now, that's as bad as that guy that prayed all night in a tent and came out with modalism. And so, in my debate against those guys in my articles, I said one of the most essential definitions of the term God or deity is eternal non-contingent existence now I'm telling you John claimed that in John 1 1 through 18 now there's a one word for it it's called a deity. deity true God doesn't depend on anything outside himself so If Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland are right, and the New Apostolic Reformation out in Reddick, California, and down in Kansas City, if they're right, Jesus' deity is not true deity. He's merely a man who figured out how to become deity, lost it, figured out how to get it back. Is going to teach us how to become deity. It's closer to Mormonism than to Christianity. So, anybody who says, well, I'm going to fight this by saying the gifts cease, are taking the easy way out. Now, if somebody wants to claim that Jesus lost his divinity, let's have the debate.
3: Yes? Well, it's not, I'm not agreeing with any of those doctrines, but what I was thinking, like, for instance, this passage here, the, they heal the blind man, he goes to the Pharisees that probably memorized a lot of the scripture they're talking about, and they say, you know, Who is this guy, Jesus? And and they say he's a sinner. And the guy says, I don't know, but I do know this. I was blind, and now I see. It's like there's some... He's a lame Well, the guy was being a pragmatist
0: because he wasn't yet converted. He wasn't a Christian.
3: Yeah, right. But uh, my point is, he barely knows the Scriptures. He barely knows anything, but he still knows some truth because he can see some of the power of God. Well,
0: that's a claim that the New Testament makes, that Jesus Christ did things that only the one promised whose coming could do. No one has done these mighty works. Now, Eric could do this better than me, but I'll do my best. Isaiah said, well, let's all do it. John, this is a great one. This will give you something to do until next time I teach or whenever we talk. Go to John 5. One of the ways you learn things is go to what, The scholars call it co-text. A co-text is a passage where the same issue comes up, but in a different setting. And so we're going to go back to John 5, 3. Actually, Eric, there's something else we could say. There's a guy who examined all of the claims and came to believe that the Bible's true, that Jesus is who he claimed he is, and that the God of the Bible created the world out of nothing. He was an atheist, but he never became a Christian because he said it's just for the Jews. The hardness of our hearts will keep us from believing overwhelming evidence. That The veil, remember that, the veil? Now, let me read John 5. I mean, what am I? New American Standard. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, jesus went up to jerusalem now there was in jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in the hebrew bethesda by the way any of you read about a pool in john 9. okay that's what a co passage that's it's already been covered there's a review and a preview maybe or maybe it doesn't mean anything but there's a couple more connections a pool in hebrew bethesda having fine porticos And these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, withered. Then there's a text that may and may not have been an original, but it comes up in verse 7, so we know that they believed it. Okay, verse 5. Okay, so what were these people? Sick, blind, lame, withered. Verse 5. A man was there who had been ill 38 years. Verse 6 when jesus saw him laying there and knew that he'd been a long time in that condition he said to him this is a very good question do you wish to get well he's making a living begging when i was in israel there was a guy with a big ulcer on his leg with a can matanya our guy said don't give him any money he can go down for free to the hospital and they'll get him they they can solve that but then he'd lose his way of making a living So it's a pertinent question. I'm not saying everybody's like that, but it does happen in Israel because I saw it there. And here's a guy just like it. The sick man, did he say yes? No, he didn't say that, did he? Look it. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I'm coming, another gets there before me. That's the story of my life. Day late and dollar short. blah, 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 poor me. How many of you know feeling sorry for yourself is unlikely to make you successful? Well, That's just human wisdom. So Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pellet and walk. Immediately, the man became well, picked up his pellet and began to walk. Now it was Sabbath. Wouldn't you know it? Sabbath. Always a problem <laughs> on that day, and so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, "It's Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. You're not allowed to." Do- Listen, that's to your point over here, Eric. Look at what's going on. Everybody saw him. He'd been there if he's been there 38 years. Everybody knew him. Everybody knew he was never going to walk. Everybody knew that Jesus healed him, including the man. But they're saying, you're a sinner. You're walking on Sabbath with your palate." Do you see the problem? Is isn't lack of evidence. It's hardness of heart. Our traditions are more important than the works of God. Remember our theme. I must work the works of him who sent me, Jesus said. Immediately, you know, well, they're saying, Sabbath, you can't do this. You're a sinner. But he answered him. He deflected. It's Jesus' fault, right? You made me well, said, pick up your pallet and walk. Then they asked him, who was the man who said, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man was, who was healed did not know who it was. So Jesus slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said, behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you what would be worse than that you know what I mean look at that but what do we learn here the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus, he turned him in but made him well for this reason they are persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath but verse 17 here's your assignment for the next time I teach I want everybody to find out what this means because it's going to be a key to chapter 9 but he answered them my father is working until now and I myself am working well verse 18 you can read that they wanted to kill him because he was not only breaking sabbath but calling God his father making himself equal to God alright you've got some data let's start, keep reading we're going to learn and the goal is to really learn how to read. Maybe we even will find out why it was mud. Well, I don't know. Maybe. I read something I, I want to throw out there. Maybe you can correct me. But put this in your mental bank. How can Jesus work the works of God? And what is that phrase, works of God? Now, when I, I used to have to use a strong concordance to find this but you can do it with computer find that phrase works of god what does that mean let's pray thank you lord for our chance to learn your word we are truly privileged because kings and angels and wise men desire to look into these things who aren't able to but to us they've been granted thank you lord that we can see these things and we pray that you'd bless eric as he preaches the word to us in jesus name amen thank you